I'm Andrew Sherman. I'm a Texas transplant who has always been in pursuit of art as a career. I've played in bands, pursued an acting career in Hollywood, but I found it behind the lens of a camera here in Dallas, Texas. I was born in New York, I've lived in Chicago, Los Angeles, Austin, but I love Dallas. There's a magical artistic scene in Dallas that mostly goes unnoticed to the outside world. This podcast is focused on what makes it so special and the people who make it thrive artistically. If you don't live here, and even if you do, you might not have heard of them. This is the Dallas Famous Podcast. So who you gonna be? Who you gonna be when you're all grown up? Who you gonna be? Who you gonna be when you're all for us? Yeah. Jerry Serencini is living his rock and roll dreams for real, and he's getting paid for it. Jerry is the drummer for a slew of tribute bands, including Forgotten Space, considered one of the best Grateful Dead tribute bands in Texas. He also plays in tributes with music of Jerry Garcia, The Beatles, and The Who. Jerry joined forces with Relics Magazine's Rock and Roll Playhouse, which introduces kids to the music of classic rock. Jerry also helps me fill in some more gaps to the history of the Dallas music scene. This is a fun one, and this episode starts before it starts for a little peek behind the curtain. So sit back and enjoy my chat with Jerry Serencini. My, my gear is not quite there yet, but, um, you know, working on it still. So this, this mic is, I used to sing with this back in LA, like in the nineties, <laughs> it's the same mic. Oh really? But I've like gone through all these other mics and this just seems for me the best one to use for this. So awesome. Yeah. I love when I catch glimpses of you jamming back in the day and all uh, that stuff. It's really cool, man. I mean, that was all I did back in the day. Yeah. I mean, I was, I didn't do any of this photo editing wow. stuff that all came later That's for me. Gra- yeah. Graduating to it. Sure. More like I was, you know, sitting around going, I'm not an actor. I'm not a musician anymore. Cause it's like, so what the hell am I going to do with my life? And, uh, yeah. So. It's cool to, you know, I, I always respect when one passion is replaced by another. I think, I mean, I, I consider that, uh, I hate to use the word lucky because oh. I, I don't totally, but, but I mean, it, you're, I you're feel... fortunate when one talent moves into another talent yeah. and, I mean, and for, it for, serves your Yeah. Well, for, for me, it was, it was actually video editing that then led into the photography. I wasn't even, I mean, when I bought my first camera, it was to do video, which I didn't ever do. I just ended up doing photography, but gotcha. I wasn't even, none of this was the, a plan at all. <laughs> That's cool. Um, but you know, it's funny about that. Um, you know, for me too, like there was a time where if you would have said, well, you're going to do something other than music and you're going to love it more. I would have been like, you're fucking crazy. <laughs> right. But I know here we are. Yeah. You know. Well, and speaking of here we are, I'm I'm sitting, you know, I, it occurs to me, I don't know if I've heard your last name out loud. Saracini. Saracini, because yeah. I was typing it wrong and I went to correct it and I'm like, I'm going to say it wrong because I don't think I've ever heard it. So It Jerry, looks, it's a little easier when you, you know, when you see it, it's two yeah. A's and two I's. But and... I think I just assumed it was like Santorini or Santorini, <laughs> like I never, I don't know, it's one right. of those it's, things. It's, certainly it's, it's, uh, I mean, my whole life I've heard, uh, I mean, I remember I, I took about three days of Italian in college one time before I <laughs> switched to another class. But it was, and I found out that, and he was calling my name and I didn't even know it because Settacini is how you would say it. Uh-huh. But I grew up Saracini, so uh, I, I yeah. know he was talking to me at the time. <laughs> That's funny. Well, Jerry, I can pronounce. That's your there first name. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Let's, Good to be here. Let's, thanks. Like, let's, start, let's start with the origin story. So where, where are you from originally? I grew up mostly in St. Louis. I spent a little time but almost beyond, before memory in Chicago, mm. uh, other parts of the Midwest, but mostly in St. Louis from almost all conscious age and... Uh, I was there till about uh, 27, other than like going to college and stuff like that. When I was 27, I moved down to Dallas. So, Mm. yeah, the majority of life was either St. Louis or Dallas. Why did you move to Dallas? Uh, Actually, it was on, I mean, it was all decided within 24 hours from decision to the whole thing's all my life is packed up in a truck and we're driving there. And I, I had my brother and my dad had lived down here for years. Okay. And I was, uh, I was on tour with a band, this original band. And I was, uh, my relationship was going to hell back at home. And it was just, you know, it was this whole thing. And, 
and uh i came back from tour and i i was it was just devastating like everything was just devastating and uh i just realized i kind of needed some different influence in my life and my sister and my mom were both in st louis at that time my brother and my dad were down here and all of a sudden it was just kind of like at part of you know my brother's encouragement it was like man come down here and i'd never done anything like that because it was like leave everything i thought i'd built you know every music connection every you know it was like everything i'd done to that point was there so it was it was kind of a big trip but it was i'm really you know obviously you look back yeah with some hindsight and you're like god i'm so glad i did it you know? yeah definitely dallas same same thing for me when I, when I got here, although I was a lot older. Um, uh, let's back up a little bit more. Uh, you know, as a kid, like, when did music become something to you more than just something going on in the background? Uh, man, I can actually almost, I mean, I can definitely pinpoint the actual experience, and I feel really fortunate for that. I've I've told this a few times, but it was, it was, um, it's this kind of thing. My birthday is in January, and in December of 1980, I like uh, I had just gotten turned on to a friend's drum set. And I remember I sat down, and he showed me how to play this beat, and I, I remember thinking, like, I'm not sure if I even ever really knew, understood the mechanics of, like, how a drum set really functions. You just see the guy up there, whatever. And it was so immediate, like, this is so cool. And, uh, and, and so I immediately started asking for drums for like Christmas, birthday, when, you know, it's so close together that it was like, I would always get something bigger. I could ask for a combo. Thing. How, so, how old was, were you at this point? I was 11. Okay. And so, um, and then of course, in the beginning of December, John Lennon was assassinated and I was not really plugged. I mean, I had records, but, and I, I knew like Paul McCartney, but I didn't really know the beat. I wasn't like completely invested in something like that yet musically. And, uh, and I remember after that happened going over, uh, I was over at my grandma's house and, and I had an aunt who was kind of more like a, a cousin age by marriage or whatever. And she had, she'd let me use her stereo and she had a massive record collection. She had a bunch of, so one day when I was sitting there and the news was on, they're showing all the people in central park. And I was like, God, I can't believe like a week into this and all these people are still. The, uh. And I, so I was like, I'm just going to go down and like check this out. So I went down, pulled out every Beatle record she had, she about eight or seven or something. And, uh, and I'm looking at him I'm like, man, I can't even believe this is like, I can't even tell who's who from this album to like these later on, like, you know, and, uh, and I was throwing them on and, and it was like, I would always throw on like the song I know. And then I jump to the next thing or the next album. And, uh, the, the, I knew there had been a movie out Sergeant Pepper. So I was looking at that. And uh, I threw it on, and the words were on the back. And there was just something about the look and the feel. And, like, I was, you know, all, like, I'd be down. You're all alone. You're experiencing it. I put it on. It's the first time that I ever listened to an album start to finish. Uh, I, I just couldn't stop. I was sitting there reading the lyrics, and I would think, okay, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change. But the, it just kept pulling me in and at the end of that experience uh mid-december i like having been turned on to drumming a little bit and then having this experience i i knew right then this is what i want to do huh. and what's crazy is that it's never like sometimes i stop and i think i'm still on the course of that moment and you know, it's sort of crazy. Huh. Wow. Yeah. Every, everything really should like I something about that moment. I knew that I had walked through some kind of door. I mean, I'm sure being 11, about to be 12 had something to do with it. But it was like I knew I couldn't go back after r reading the lyrics at album, experiencing that whole thing. I mean, ending in a day in the life. Like I knew I couldn't go back to like, you know. 
whatever kids do at 11 or 12 games and go, you know, I was just like, wow. It was like, I felt like I had, had matured somehow. (laughs) The music matured you. It was weird. That's cool. That's really cool. Okay. Well, so then you're now going through that process of like really like focusing on music, I guess, and playing. And so you're playing in original bands in high school and stuff or when did that start? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, there was some of that. It was certainly getting together with with friends and jamming, and I was like taking lessons, uh, private lessons, and I was going through uh, school. And uh, I meaning like all the programs school would have to offer, jazz, classical, all this stuff. And then, um, but r- the real, I kind of think of the real original bands happening in college, because like nothing I did in high school ever made it beyond like somebody's party or something sure, you know sure and uh and uh yeah in college uh i i there were some fr- although i will say this I, I had kind of two sets of musical friends that were really influential in high school that were starting original bands and were really cool and you know they had a pretty profound impact but everything, I, it, I was also doing a kind of thing. Like when I started playing, I kind of consider, even though I, was, I had gigged professionally before then, I think of 1990 as the real year that I started. And uh, like that's the first time I actually literally got a calendar to keep my dates together or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was like, uh, and I was always like trying to do everything across the map, like, uh, gig gigs original band like uh, cover there were, weren't really tribute bands but like you know party bands cover but like any any jazz gigs like ev- everything was i was coming from this mindset reading every you know monitor where it was just like diversify play everything you can all that and and you know i part of me wanted to be a studio musician part of me wanted to be in a band part of me wanted to be in the beatles you know what i mean mm-hmm. And I and the one thing I wish I had taken more seriously then is all my heroes, which were kind of, you know, uh, older bands at the time. I wish I would have had the foresight to understand that many of those artists would be tapping musicians of my generation eventually to go back out on the road and mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah. And I think I just, not, you know, that seemed like a pipe dream. In fact, mo- a lot of my heroes didn't even tour during, and so you just assume they probably never would again. You would, you did, you know. Oh, yeah, no, I remember. Couldn't see the sort of writing on the wall that Steely Dan and Paul McCartney, people like, would, like, go back on the road eventually. It just seemed like, oh, those days are over or oh, something. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And uh, huh. so... Yeah, I don't know if I jumped off course. Not at all. Not at all. So this is where did you go to school? College? Uh I I I spent my first year down here at UNT and then I went to Mizzou in Columbia and then I did some more in St. Louis at a place called Webster, which had a jazz program. And that's about the time when I was at Webster, that's when I was uh that's about the same time. It, actually, Mizzou is where I first started playing in like original bands that went out and played venues and stuff like that. And uh, and there were two guys, two buddies of mine, who weren't even connected yet. But during those times, like the one of the first serious original bands I was in had this my buddy Dino English from, uh, who's the drummer in Dark Star Orchestra now, and uh, and the other drummer was we were going through the jazz program at Webster at the same time. And, uh, I think I just told this in another thing. So I feel weird, but, but yeah, that summer we were playing together. Uh, I was always going to dead shows like for a week or so in the summer. By that time, it was pretty Uh steady thing. And I'd come back and tell Dino about it. And he was always like, eh. no, he wouldn't, he wasn't, but he was just kind of like not into that more alternative. You know how they were like, yeah. those kind of hey, people were not into the dead. For it, sure. it, right. And, and particularly musicians and particularly like kind of alternative original musicians at that time. And, uh, and, uh, you know, I just would come back and I had a good tape source and I'd be playing stuff and you, it's funny. There are a lot of my friends who maybe even still never got into. They they would sometimes really respond to, 
hearing and feeling the way an audience was responding on a tape to mm-hmm. something and they'd just be like you know you can't I mean it gives you chills just talking about sure. it now and stuff wait I don't want to interrupt but back up how did you get into the dead oh that was really initially through my brother and his record collection and him kind of turning me on I like the first year of playing drums it was all Beatles and Stones basically Stones were coming on tour in 81 and right got to go see them and so and so it like it was all that and they kind of graduated to the who kind of that normal Beatlestones who order mm-hmm. and I remember there's the day where he came up with a handful of albums and and he would because you know the whole family had to endure my, my my routine was that I had this stereo next to the drum set in my room that I would crank to 10 and play along to. It's like, <laughs> and so, you know, the, the whole, the whole family would have to endure whatever trip I was on. And, and, uh, he came up one time. He's like, man, it's, it's time you, you graduate. Like it's time you check some other stuff out. And I remember there was like Neil Young and the Grateful Dead. And, uh, actually that might've been where the who came into the picture too. And then it was like, um, uh, Leonard Skinner. There was just some. He gave me a bunch of stuff, and in there, the Grateful Dead was was pretty interesting. And I was like, whoa! And 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 uh, I remember he had a book too, the official book of the Deadheads, which was like at the time there there weren't that many books out about the Dead, right? And uh, so you know, I'd flip through that, I'd be reading, that, I'd be listening to the two the two albums that that hit me first were. Shakedown Street album uh-huh. and uh, and uh, Skeletons from the Closet. Uh-huh. Later, like little Blues for Allah, and there was some other stuff that I I got turned on to. But you know, I can remember the again the actual song that was was the good loving opener of Shakedown Street mm-hmm. with Bobby C. Like that, and and it that was the thing that just like I just you know. Huh, that's interesting. Want to be Bob Weir, and you know what I mean. Right, like he went through that whole phase, and 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 so, and then, and then I saw my first show. It was probably within a couple years. Like I was probably twelve around that time, and I think I saw my first show when I was like fourteen. Huh. My mom would would. Uh, she wasn't a deadhead or anything, but she was. She would really support my interest and allow me to go to concerts and. One time she kept me from going to see the Stones, and then she told me, okay, you can go to, like I said, 81, Rosie. And I was trying to win tickets on the radio every morning. I'd get up every morning and call, like, you know, <laughs> and I couldn't. And she just, one day she said she heard me in there trying. And she just, so, so she surprised me, like, that December. I came home from school one day, and she was like, uh, you know, get ready or something we're going to kansas city to see the stones tonight or something she hooked up some cool tickets and so i mean we were like right next to the stage on the level of the stage and huh. it was amazing cool and, mom yeah so she would kind of help out and so she did that for the dead too she took me <laughs> so funny to think about it. she took me and my girlfriend at the time to kansas city to see the dead and I, I laugh when I think about, like, she was, I remember that she went to go pick up the tickets while we were at the hotel, and she was driving through the lot, and all the heads were freaking. <laughs> Imagine my mom driving through the lot. <laughs> oh, so funny. Oh, that is great. Yeah. That's funny. And so, and then, you know, the next set of shows was 86 Alpine. Uh-huh. And so that was one, two, three. And my then, first show was Alpine, but not until 88. I was there for a couple of the like oh, they cool. were split. They I were... I just went to one and okay. it was I, I remember bits. It, I remember they closed with knocking on heaven's door. So. Okay, um, I think you were on the other end of the two that I saw because it was something like it was like they were playing two. I remember this clip. They were playing two nights and someone either. Carlos Santana or Dylan, Dylan or something. It might have been Dylan. Yeah, yeah, it was in between, and then they he, had two more. Because I thought he was on stage with them, <laughs> right? But he wasn't. <laughs> I was, there's a couple of firsts. Like a couple right. of firsts uh, that show I won't specify. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 
but uh, the great alpine yeah, yeah that was a great i saw a fish there and i saw saw the dead there so you get to dallas how did you find the scene um you mean like the dead scene or just the music scene in general whichever was first for you it re- yeah you know i had always at that point i had never i wouldn't play dead music i i was like kind of even sort of I mean, it was almost like a conscious thing, but, but I, I can't tell there weren't sort of like the bar was not real high for people who played dead music back in the day. It was always <laughs> sure. kind of parking lot jams to maybe like a little blues bar with some guys. And, and, and I remember Dino had gotten really into it and started playing it as did Rob. That's how they hooked up in St. Louis eventually to join Dark Star Road. But at the time, there weren't like Dark Star Orchestra kind of level things. Mm-hmm. And and I was so dedicated to original music. Sure. It was two things. I didn't want to ruin the dead for me. And I kind of had this rule, uh, this like in my mind, it was this thing about, uh, I like those six guys playing this music. I don't like anybody playing this music. You know, mm-hmm. I like it when those six guys, the Grateful Dead, played this music. Mm-hmm. And, and I would almost sometimes even separate that whole world and experience musically. Like, music was divided into here's everything, and then here's the Grateful Dead. And so, uh, and, and I, I will say, when I moved down here, it was 97. So Jerry had passed, mm-hmm. and I actually had to, even after being down here, I, was, I had to separate from the music. For, it was too painful. It was, sure. I just missed everything something would come into my orbit or i'd go pull, i had a you know 500 tape collection or like so i'd go pull something out every once in a while and i was st- you know i still felt connected to it but i just couldn't visit and uh and the thing that pulled me back in was when phil lesh and bob weir came to oklahoma city in 2001 and i was like kind of i was like oh I, it's too close and i got to mm-hmm. see what they're about mm-hmm. these days i don't know I couldn't fathom doing it without jerry but but to get back to your question when i moved down here and i was like you know i'd done it so abruptly and i was like oh my god what do i do and and uh i remember it was like the one time in my life where i mean i was only like 27 years old i hadn't really lived that long but it seemed like i had lived a lifetime of music and professional connections so and I, and I thought, wow, man, I have to start all over. Because like I said, I had diversified music and gigs so much that I felt like I had left a lifetime of connections and sure. routes to do stuff. And I was like, God, I can't believe I got to start all over. And then it's like the lesson was, no, you re- it, what really happens is you kind of start, you fi- somehow you find your way with where you are. And one of the, in the original bands that I had been in, in St. Louis, there were some that were very popular, very respected, but we never could get a record deal, which was still a hundred percent the goal at that time. Sure. You know, the objective seemed like for everyone. And so when I got down here, um, this very, sweet girl who's the cousin of the relationship I, of the girl I, in the relationship I just left. She's really entrenched in the music scene down here. And she called me and said, Hey, there's this band. They just signed with Geffen records. Um, they're getting ready to put an album out and they're looking for a drummer. Do you, and it was about a month in or two months or something like that. So I was like, yeah, let me check that out. And so, the first thing that came along was the thing that had eluded me the whole time in St. Louis. So I was very grateful for that. I, you know, I will say this, the other cool thing that happened during that time too, when I moved down here was like, I had to get a job. You know, it's like I moved into an apartment. I had to get a job. Like, how do you pay the bills? Like if it's not through music and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I had never been, uh, I realized I, I had never who was I if I was not a musician? Sure. If I didn't have that whole thing. And uh, so I wound up getting this. 
I did like a waiting tables at this Italian restaurant. I think I was helping an, another friend do some, some painting work and stuff, but I was like, I was working in this restaurant and it was like, it was a fun, you know, kind of party and crowd, like restaurant scenes can sometimes be. And so it was, a, it was a good distraction in a way, but it was also this thing of like, I was very consciously like, I'm not, I'm not the thing I've always been. And Am yeah. I anything without that? Do I, you know what I mean? Sure, it's identity like a, crisis for sure. Yeah, it was, yeah. so it was, it was, it was healthy to go through that and, and figure out that I was okay. And, and that, so then when music started to reveal itself and it, well, like I said, two months in, isn't that long. So it was like, uh, it was like, it was cool. It was like able to slip back and then. And it, you know, all those people, uh, that whole crowd was so supportive. It was a band called Slowpoke. Mm-hmm. It was out of Dallas, and uh, kind of a pop punk thing. And uh, you know, we would play trees all the time, those, those kind of places. And and uh, it was it was fun, but mm-hmm. it was it was also really different. It was like I was used to even in original bands doing three, four, three hour, four hour shows, man, they would play 30 minutes, same set all the time. Bam, 30 minutes. It's about 35 minutes long. Huh. So it's like, wow. Like, yeah. Come in slamming. Cause you don't, there's no even time to warm up. <laughs> right. And, uh, and, and, and then the, the other thing that came there, were, corporate gig is weird corporate gigs that I would always had, you know, play, was kind of bread and butter that came through a connection, a guy that I did those with in St. Louis had a gig down here and he picked up a few guys here and he knew I was here. So, you know, we did it. And then the bass player on that led his band and that led to like five years with him. You know what I mean? It was mm-hmm. like, it was a thing. And the, and the other thing is I remember right when I was leaving St. Louis again, tribute bands weren't a thing. And I know it's like now that's almost primarily all I do. But at the time, they weren't a thing. But I, there were a few gigs I would play where whenever we would do Steely Dan tunes, this this bass player would always go, man, wouldn't it be like fun as hell to just be in a band that only played Steely Dan music? <laughs> and uh, and uh, weirdly enough, I, I uh, when I was here... And I was like kind of new and looking for opportunities. Like I'd always, I'd always heard, don't ever answer ads in the paper. You know what I mean? Uh Like uh it's so funny. You can read them and laugh at the, the kind of things that are in there. But one day I was flipping through the observer and it said uh, in the back where it had some things for, and it said, you know, trying to start a Steely Dan thing or something. And, And I thought, man, you know what, this, like, this could be a train wreck, but if nothing else, I'll just have an afternoon playing some Steely Dan tunes. Right. So I was like, I I might as well give it a call. And, and that, that was the thing that formed into Naked Lunch. And I did that for 17 years, which Forgotten Space is about to past that but still to this day that's the longest tenure of anything so meaning like huh. the one thing i thought no oh, you don't ever answer that i never gonna <laughs> turn out to be the thing and you know and uh and not to keep going but that led to in those early days chuck rainey the basis on all the steely dan stuff turns out he lived in bedford texas he came played with us then he asked me and some of the other people in the to be his backup band and that led to some touring with him and recording with him and other Steely Dan alumni and it was I mean it was it was it was a really fun and sort of diverse first early few years here in Dallas. Wow, that's like Yeah, I know. It's like mind blowing. <laughs> it 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 really was. It was it was cool. And so was that how you met some of these other bigger people? Like Photos with you and Phil Lesh, you know, random stuff like that. Oh, the f- that that came uh, as a different thing, but it's funny when that the the that uh, you saw that picture I posted right. with Phil. Yeah, sure, sure. so that was uh, a thing that 
That was in 2006, and it was a thing that Phil did called Phil Lesh University, which would be like sort of a rock and roll fantasy camp thing. And he did it one time. Huh. And it was like, and I remember when he, when he put, and at the time I had just been like, I got, I got turned on to like going back into shows in 2001 and the, the Q, the quintet, like where it was Phil, Warren Haynes, John Molo, Rob Baracco and, uh, and Jimmy Herring, like that band. I mean, I just went full force and like was hitting tons of shows for a few years while that band existed. And that was the one that pulled me back. So I was really kind of into Phil and by 2006, that band wasn't around, but I was still kind of following. So when I, I, I answered the call to this thing and I remember, I just thought like, I saw it at first and blew it off. And then I was like, like, you know, it was like announced on a Thursday or something. And like following Monday came around and I, for some reason I got up and I walked into my like home office. I saw it and I just fired off this letter real quick and said, here's who I am. This is what I do professionally. Like, here's who I've sort of, I, I, I made some connections and I, I, I didn't play dead music like mm-hmm. at, at that point, but I made some connection. Like I would sit in with dark star and, uh, and I, you know, I told him I play a lot of Steely Dan and Chuck Rainey and stuff. And, uh, and I sent it off and assumed there's no, you know, how many drummers are doing this or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then one night, I, some, you know, a week, two later or something, I came home from like a party gig and, and I was married at the time. My wife was downstairs and I walked in the office, boom, you've been selected to come do that. It was like, huh. whoa. So then it was like, okay, so we went up in. It was in November of 2006 and it was, and, and it was, it was going to be a thing where there was like a band that played the first set and then there was a band that played the second set and it was at a, it was a club called Soho in, in, uh, the village that it's about 450 people. I could bring my wife. I got Dino in, uh, cause they were, and they were starting a tour in Atlantic city the next night. And Rob Baracco, who's in the bit, was was playing a third sort of set. It was like Phil, John Schofield, Rob Baracco, and this New York drummer named Jazz Sawyer. So this was all part of the stay. And so, like, you go rehearse, and then you have dinner. And I, I couldn't even believe it. Like, of all these musicians, like, Phil sat right across from me at dinner. <laughs> and I, I was like, I was actually just, I was, st- I, I, I had a lump in my throat, like meaning I, I actually almost froze up. I, I could not open up at dinner. I was so yeah, just, I mean, I was like in my head too much, you know? Sure. And, uh, but the gig not. And, and, uh, so the gig was, was great. And that picture, yeah, was taken. I can't probably right before we played <laughs> and I love it. And, and, uh, you know, Jill, his wife was there and met a lot of people in the family. And Dino had thrown, in fact, Robbie Taylor, one of the dead crew. He was the guy sort of helping with the kit and all the logistics and stuff. And Dino, who's friends with him, had given him a heads up. And so he was giving me a hard time in the, the best way. It's good, good stuff. But, wow, that's cool. Yeah. That's cool. So wait, so, but get back to, so how did, how does Forgotten Space come about? So the, actually in the years, uh, I said that was around 2006, like Forgotten Space, for me, my connection was somewhere in 04 or 05 or something like that. Uh, like I, I started getting asked to come play uh, actually, it was really, you know, it was Kendall that kind of brought me in because he was a he would always come out to Naked Lunch, the Steely Dan tribute band. He would always come to those shows at Club Dada, and there was a guy starting a thing uh, named Phil that like a dead thing, and they were and they were meeting at a place called Sugar Shack, which this other drummer owned, Lance Deal, and it was just kind of a collect. You know, I guess it was in a way kind of like the dead thing where it was like a 
collection of musicians and whoever was available and they were you know i don't know if they were trying to put it into a band but uh we got down there and it, and it was like wow it was fun to play some dead music and uh you know and it, you know it could be varying degrees of competency and all that stuff sure. but i i had always been a like i mean prior to moving to dallas i was a Nubos fan and and I mean they were all on my radar in terms of musicians and I was so into the record when I was at Mizzou. I mean I played it for a year, you know. Mm. And so Kenny was and and I knew other musicians that knew Kenny, not even in the dead scene, like jazz musicians and stuff. And I always thought, wow, man, he'd be a great guy to know or jam with someday. And so some one of those days at Sugar Shack. It, it turned out Kenny was going to be on. It was like, great. So then we met and, and, uh, and, uh, played a few of those. And then that thing kind of fizzled out and somehow it, it and, and Scott Prosser had, who was the original, like Bobby Weir of forgotten space. He, he's the one who really started it and called it forgotten space and all that. Mm-hmm. And I remember he was tapping me to come play, and we, man, we rehearsed. I mean, I don't mean like real intense. I just mean we would get together and play and kind of try to work stuff out. But I couldn't. I my calendar was like full. I mean, I used to play like six nights a week during this time, and wow. it was like I could. I was never available for a gig, so we rehearsed for a long time. We weren't booking gigs, and then they started booking gigs, and I had kind of pulled away because I just couldn't prioritize, you know, and that was like when it was like, oh, you know, everybody might make 30 bucks or something, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? So mm-hmm. it was just like, yeah, okay, whatever. It's fun to do, but I can't, you yeah, know, sure. can't carve out a Saturday or something. And, uh, and, and, but, you know, it, it had, it was cool. And I remember after going to play with Phil, that was the thing. That was one of the things where I was like, ah, oh, I came back and I said, oh man, this would be fun to play. So we started doing it a little more and then it was like, we. St- that's when I kind of got more involved and it was still like, it was like trying to balance it with everything, but we started doing it uh, where it was like kind of a regular lineup, like a set lineup and we, it, uh, we would play club data and then we moved it to barley house and it was like kind of a once a month thing mm-hmm. and it it had like kind of a life and and then and then the thing that really kicked it into gear at least for me was uh what i there was a time where i later on i was getting divorced and uh i, I remember there was my brother who was running a company out of San Francisco. It was like, let's uh, let's go out, hit some uh, Dark Star shows. It was like a little run. Let's go hit those. And, I went, and so I did. And uh, and the first one was like in Santa Cruz. And when they were doing an elective show, that you know, they're, uh, Dino Rob buddies and so kind. And they'd invite me up to join in on drums and stuff. And I remember I got up there and I was like, it was... When I came back from that, I thought, man, like to step into the world was always really cool because there was so much uh, care towards detail. I mean, they and it was like and and in a way, without it being cheap, they were living like like if you mirror something so detailed, you are, in fact, kind of you're living the experience like the the group you're mirroring in a way or Mm -hmm. something and Mm -hmm. and everything i mean every detail was so thought out and organized and well done that was my perception anyway and it was like and you know they're playing the rooms they're grateful to i mean it was just like man this they're they they're living the life that the grateful <laughs> and it was it was pretty cool and exciting i'd always had such a, a reverence for that you know the way the dead operated and everything and like 
they were sort of a doorway into seeing that, like, wow, you know? Uh -huh. And it made me realize that, like, oh, wow, we could. And then it's like, man, you know, like, Kenny Withrow is a world-class musician. Like, meaning it's not impossible for us to go do something beyond a once-a-month thing. Let's, like, let's uh -huh. just start. And so that kind of kicked it into gear for me. And I came back, and I remember the first thing I was going to do is, like, I'm going to build my own beast like that drum setup i'm gonna build a beast and uh and i started doing that and you know that was a very motivating thing and hmm. and you know it seems it seems uh in it, it it may seem inconsequential but it's it's weird how steps like that changed it w was one of many that started to change the perception of what we did. And I mean, even from myself, I mean, like, you know what I mean? It was like, the more I got invested, the more I got into it, the more we could kind of get, you know. Yeah, no, that beyond. makes sense. Yeah, I mean, and also, I mean, you had to create a kit where you could kind of emulate two drummers. So that's like another factor. We were two drummers back then, actually. Okay. And, uh, and, uh, and that was fun. That was cool. And, and frankly, when we, you know, it's like, you know, when you're doing something, you'll, uh, you'll say, okay, this is a hard position, but then, you know, the, like you course correct as you go along. And I mean, I, the, the two drummer thing is, is awesome. I mean, there's no, there's sort of like, it's really, I mean, it's up, but like getting out on the road, at first I was like, we just won't play places that can't facilitate our whole scene, like our whole setup. And we're only, you know, if, mm -hmm. if we get, and where we were as a band, the reality was there were sometimes we'd go into cities that the right room for us to play was definitely one that couldn't facilitate the whole thing. Mm -hmm. But it was like, and so sometimes we'd try playing another room and it's like, uh, you know, really playing that place is the place. And so you start to make certain compromises, I guess, or, you know, just cause you're, you're trying to, you get, it's a balance of how you elevate everything. And so, and then it came down to a, when, when, uh, when Pablo, you know, life called and it was time to do something else and. And it was like, for a while, we were just doing it this way. And we had we had developed such a chemistry, like such a a language, or you know what I mean, mm -hmm. uh, in, intuition of how we interact, that it was, it was like, oh, it it, it it wasn't always easy to just plug someone else in. Sure. And, the, and that whole chemistry also translates to just, you know, and as you would, you'll know, it's like, it's, can you just hang and live and travel and be trapped in a box with these people? And like, you, you know, <laughs> yeah, like it's sometimes weird to bring someone else into that inner circle. I, I mean, I shouldn't say it's weird. It's certainly not impossible, but where we were at the time, it was definitely a thing of like, wow, like it's, it's one less consideration was a, was a bit of relief on one level even though you were giving up the beauty you know mm -hmm. I, mean, we, I don't mean we didn't miss him personally or or sure and we certainly missed the you know the musical thing too but i just mean then it was like but but here's here's the the upside part of it is like you know there's a little more room and, <laughs> right. and you know it's it's easier to function and so we just kind of started going in a direction like that. And, and, and I, tr I think I had always tried to play a little bit of like, when I do it, I try to be both drummers to some degree. I'm not, I'm not right. sticking hard into one uh, or the other these days. It's like, you know, it's like trying to play foundationally like Kreutzmann and then be the sort of, soloing voice on top that mickey is and mm -hmm. i hear the music that way so it kind of comes out you know and then yeah no it, it it comes across and it's 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 amazing how much you can fill just by yourself 
Um, mm, thanks. So, but so you have more than one tribute band now. Yes. Yeah. Let's, who else do you? What else do you do? So, currently there, there's another one that's uh, dedicated to the Who called Who's Best, and uh, man, I just love that band. We don't get to play uh, as often. Everyone in the band is is really like a full-time musician and mm. and but when we come together it just it's just magical everybody loves the who everybody yeah it's completely fun. like it, it, you know studied into it and into it and so really it really brings i mean it's it, and it's for me it was it's hard music to uh i mean that was real like even though i loved that and grew up with it uh i mean two hours playing who music is like it's a workout six hours of playing grateful dead music like, <laughs> right yeah. and that's two drummers and it's still yeah, <laughs> yeah right. that's funny right funny and then you got rosebud which is jerry garcia oh yeah which is yeah, fantastic right, right? Yeah. yeah no i love that i mean yeah. oh your your guitar player what's his name again uh, uh paul metzger gosh yeah the fact that he was not a deadhead he just brings this really great vibe to the whole thing man thank you, you know? to hear you say that i yeah. i mean i completely agree but it's it's great to hear it oh yeah no because he's such a great improviser he's such a he's you know i knew him through jazz world a bit and and he was actually really good friends with uh scott prosser who like said hey, oh, okay. and i so that's why i thought Maybe he might be into the dad a little bit. It he, he, out. I remember he came to a show of ours back in 2013, mm. Fort Worth, and so I thought maybe he might. And and it, it turned out it, it was not really that he, you know, he was an awareness like he's, you know, kind of would keep aware of things. So he mm. wasn't completely foreign to him, but he'd never really delved in or played it. So yeah, I love he brings a great spirit I to feel, it. I feel not that there aren't other guys that do this well, but there's something about the fact that he wasn't like a Garcia disciple that just brings a freshness to the solos, like to that music. That's, I think what the difference is for me. I guess, I mean, I love Kenny playing Jerry stuff. I mean, he loves Jerry and so, right. and that's obvious. And so for that's a different thing in that, but like with, with, with Rosebud, it's yeah, it's, I don't know. Anyway, you also have a Beatles thing. Is that right? I do. I'm part of a, a band that, uh, I, I, uh, called me and my monkey uh -huh. <laughs> and uh, out of Fort Worth and you know they've been doing it for like 25 years they were a band together and and uh, they, you know same four guys and then um, and I joined that kind of during the the lockdown pandemic like so sure. coming out and and then that that kind of led to a thing where I'm playing a, a gig tonight actually with a band out of kind of based out of California that plays Beatles music. Oh, cool. Called JP. So kind of just pick up gigs. It's really, I, boy, it's like really such a, a joy. Anytime I get to play that music, it's, yeah. you know, it, it always lights me up. Right. I mean, and I mean, also I saw you play that, um, at the rock and roll playhouse. Is that oh, what yeah. Was? Yeah. That's another thing you're doing. Right. Oh gosh. I'm so excited about that too. It's a, yeah. uh, Pete Shapiro, the the promoter that that put together like the Fairly Well concerts, and he owns Brooklyn Bowl and Relics. And he started this program, and it's been in like thirty five cities. I don't know why it took so long to come to Dallas, but uh, yeah, it's like a different artist every month, and it's for kids, kind of ages, you know, maybe three or four up to about probably nine or whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, man, it's just awesome. And for me, it's just this a great opportunity to either gather different sets of musicians that are friends or that I used to play with or, or play with currently or never played with and put it together to, to, you know, sort of support an artist's music. So really fun to be yeah. able to do that. It's fun. And the kids really. have a good time. Although I don't recommend trying to limbo with them because they all cheat <laughs> did but you did you go for the limbo? i was i was photo, uh, taking photos i wasn't participating but <clears throat> i'm glad i didn't because i <laughs> felt cheated and they got the parachute going it's really it's really fun um let, let me let me take this another direction real quick so 
<clears throat> a lot of what you do, not all of what you do, but like, you know, Forgotten Space is kind of like the almost some people would call it the cornerstone of like the Dallas jam scene right now. But what, what, oh. how would you look at the Dallas jam scene like, you know, in on its own and compared to other places? I, you know, I, uh, I, my thought is I wish I knew it even deeper than I do. Uh, I, you know, I, is, as an old guy who just plays a lot, I, I you know, I, I kind of get in my own bubble at times. I can say from the viewpoint of, uh, I mean, there are some really cool original things. I love Trimore Mojo. I like Mason Adams. Uh, there's there's some cool stuff out there. Uh, from the perspective of forgotten, like playing Grateful Dead music, I got to say, it's it's amazing and shocking that Dallas is what it is and has been for so long. I mean, there are other guys, you know, that can speak to the those great days of the dead thing more than I can. But I can say even just from Forgotten Space Time and from playing dead music in, you know, California with some musicians and, and then taking Forgotten Space out, uh, Dallas has a unique uh, supportive scene. One of the things that makes it different than other places is that it has, in the whole time I've been doing it, it the the people, it, it just keeps uh, regenerating young and older people, younger people and older people, and it doesn't change. And in a lot of other scenes, it's one or the other. And mm -hmm. then sometimes it just sort of like doesn't, keep regenerating and that that's been the thing that blows me away about dallas because in most people that i talk to that kind of do stuff would almost agree that it's like wow um it, that was the last place we expected to find it but mm -hmm. you, we have great venues too i mean mm -hmm. look at deep elm arco and how that supports that look at it uh you know look at the granada theater i mean yeah. it, it supports this kind of of musical movement and uh and then and you have so many people dedicated look at like time to fly like mm -hmm. look at the kind of stuff you you know you're involved with and it's just like it's a great supportive scene yeah absolutely so uh you got anything cool coming up yeah we're excited about uh our trip out to ventura california to play skull and roses festival which uh phil esh is headlining and, uh, you know, every, so many, many, I shouldn't say every, but many, many cool dead bands, Dark Star Orchestra, Stu Allen, Mars Hotel, and so Forgotten Space, it's an honor for us to play that. That sounds fun. Is That's, that an adventure, uh, fairgrounds? Yeah, it's actually the, the actual spot where the Grateful Dead used to play, and they yeah. even go to the degree of, the stage has been moved since then, but for that festival, they move it back to the location that oh, the great, cool. where it was when the Grateful Dead. One played. of my favorite Jerry Garcia band shows was there. Oh, cool! God, it was so amazing. Yeah, just I remember like just being on the beach beforehand and then just walking over to the show. <laughs> yes, so it's, it is, you're gonna have a great time. It is amazing. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Well, hey, thanks again for sitting down with me, Jerry. Thanks, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. Right. Yeah. On. Thank you. I'd like to thank Jerry Serencini for sitting in with me today. It was a great time. Theme song, Unstoppable, by Celine Narala. You can hear the Dallas Famous podcast every week, Sunday, 1 p.m. on Deep Ellen Radio, then again on Tuesday at 1 p.m. And then a couple weeks later, we put them on all the podcast platforms. So check it out. Glad you're here. We'll see you next time.